you for joining Associated Luxury Hotels International on this episode of Beyond the Meeting Room. Beyond the Meeting Room is hosted by Alhai's president and CEO, Michael Dominguez. Each episode, Alhai shares candid conversations on a variety of topics to enhance your personal and professional life. In today's episode, we are joined by Darcy Gector, the first and only woman to kayak the Amazon River from source to sea. She shared her inspiring story at our Alhai Executive Women in Leadership event and talks with Mike today about impactful ways to plan for and accomplish massive goals, why proving people wrong is her fiercest motivator, how to harness the courage to follow your passions and defy society's expectations, and the next big adventure she is planning. Darcy, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I was really excited to uh, have this conversation because, unfortunately, I, I missed you at our Executive Women in Leadership program that we had uh, as I had to leave earlier. But uh, everybody had told me nothing but rave reviews around your conversation and how inspired they were. Uh, more than anything, uh, to hear about your story. So I'm excited that we can broaden that that same story here with our podcast listeners. All right. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. And well, let, let's start. Tell, tell everybody a little bit about your, your journey, because I, I, I was reading uh, a little bit about what, what you've done and, and literally being the first woman to paddle the Amazon. Uh, and, 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 you know, for somebody that's a novice like me, from source to sea, what does that mean when you say from source to sea? All right. Well, it, it actually is sort of complicated because a lot of people fight about what the definition of the source <laughs> is. But the one that we chose was the uh, longest tributary of the Amazon. Okay. And so that is a river called the Montaro River, which starts in Peru. It starts um, as a little trickle that's literally about three inches wide um, at 15,000 feet in the Peruvian Andes. So we started there and um, obviously we couldn't kayak when it was three inches wide, but so we hiked our boats down to where it was big enough to kayak. And then we kayaked uh, the entire length of the river until the Amazon spills out into the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil. Now, now how long was that journey? It was over 4,000 miles and it took us 148 days to do. Oh my gosh. It's very long. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, so so let me ask this. Um, where where did where did the idea come from? I, I I know I know you're a kayaker, but where where did it come into your mind to say, I want to do this? So it it wasn't my idea. Um, I'll start with that. So yeah, <laughs> now I've been kayaking for 25 years and I just really uh, I love the sport of kayaking, but I also love the idea of expedition kayaking, which has taken me to a lot of different countries. Um, you know, the expedition kayaking, what I mean when I say that is like taking your kayak to go do some remote remote river. You know, sometimes it right. has been done before, sometimes it hasn't, but just sort of traveling with your kayak basically is what it is. And it has taken me to some super remote places and met, allowed me to meet people that I know I would otherwise not have gotten the chance to meet. So I had been doing this sort of kayaking for a long time. And the idea for the Amazon came from a guy named David Midgley, who I'll just call Midge because that's his nickname. <laughs> and he came into my life because I own a whitewater kayak guiding business in Ecuador. And he emailed me one day and he said, hey, 
Um, I want to kayak the Amazon from source to sea, but I'm not a very good kayaker. So can I start coming to Ecuador and you teach me to be an expert kayaker? And of course, I got this email and I was like, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> so we started a correspondence and he started coming. And the idea for him came about basically as a midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And he, he's a really brilliant computer programmer and he's very good at it and he loves doing it. But he worried that he would spend his entire life sitting in front of a computer writing code. And he thought he would be a well-rounded human if he did one big adventure. And he was just like researching and read the statistic that said more people had uh, walked on the moon than had descended the Amazon from source to sea. And oh, no wow. one had kayaked the whole thing. So he was like, great, this is gonna be my thing. And when he decided that he had never sat in a kayak before, he had never been camping before. And yeah, I'm not exaggerating. He really had no skills that would help <laughs> this. But so he started coming to Ecuador and me and my longtime boyfriend, Don, we worked with him for a decade. So like 10 wow. years of every winter coming to Ecuador and he became an expert kayaker. So that means he could kayak class five, which is the hardest uh, classification of whitewater. And when he was ready, he asked us to go with him. And I was pretty excited about the idea. Um, Don, he's like an amazingly gifted whitewater kayaker, but he hates flat water, which the Amazon has a lot of. And he hates bugs. And he was like, not too stoked about going, but he said, well, I guess if you're going, I have to too. So <laughs> that's how our team came together. Oh my God. What an amazing story. You know, what's fascinating is you said 10 years. I yeah. mean, taking 10 years of preparation. I, I, I think sometimes what is missed and, and that's what stood out to me. I was going to ask you, how, how much do you have to prepare for something that is a big dream? You know, when I think about it in life, you know, we sometimes have dreams. How hard do you want to work for it? Right. And, and how much are you going to prepare? Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like it's getting harder and harder to um to think of these long-term goals and to stick to them because we all are getting very accustomed to instant gratification and yeah. short-term goals and like instant feedback and reward. And, you know, for my career, you know, everybody talks about when you're young, like find your passion and, you know, follow that and blah, blah, blah. And I, it's great advice. I do like that. But, you know, my passion was kayaking and I thought, what am I ever going to do with this? <laughs> so I sort of made a deal with myself when I was, I guess I, I started kayaking when I was 19. I said, okay, like I'm going to take five years and just be a kayaker. And then I'll like atone for this by joining the Peace Corps afterwards. I don't know what I'll do, but I was like, you, you can have five years to just do this. But when, what I realized then and just like going for this passion is like, I was able to build sort of a career around it, you know, with the guiding business, um, you know, that was the main thing. But then all of that lead up, let me be prepared to say yes to Midge when this Amazon idea came up. So that was 16 years into my kayaking career. And then the Amazon trip, like I ended up writing a book about it and I ended up now talking to people like you. And it's been this pretty crazy journey, but it did take a lot of, um, perseverance. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people in my social circle or friends and family would say like, when are you going to grow up and get a real job and settle down? <laughs> this is a little ridiculous, Darcy. And it's hard not to give in to those pressures, but it's just like really what I wanted 
to do? <clears throat> and that was like a very meandering non-answer of your question. But the the Amazon no. trip itself, like when we started preparing for it, you know, Mitch learned how to kayak over the course of a decade. And he also did other funny things. Like he found kayaking to be very, very scary. So in his brain, he's like, if I find something scarier, kayaking won't seem that bad. <laughs> he's really afraid yeah, he's really afraid of heights. So he took up skydiving. So to make kayaking seem like a lesser evil. I guess. <laughs> and he started running marathons because he knew he had to be physically fit. And for Don and I, it basically just looked like doing what we do all the time, which is kayaking every chance we get, you know, for work, for fun. So we were just kayaking all the time, trying to build strength. And the one thing that we all failed to prepare for on this Amazon trip was like the mental and emotional challenges. Yeah. Like we, we attacked it in a very physical manner. Like, let's get strong. Let's get fit. Let's be ready to kayak every day for five months. And then we just, yeah, sort of neglected the much more challenging yeah. factor of how are we going to A, deal with each other for five months and B, deal with like getting motivated to get out of the tent back into the kayak every day for five months. And so that part we had to sort of learn on the fly. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you because there had to be moments of what the heck are we doing uh, during the trip? And, and mentally, how, how do you push through that? And I, I think you do it together partially but how do you how how did you get through that i to me that is that i i would have guessed that would have been the hardest struggle not not the physical side it would have been the mental side it definitely was the hardest part and sometimes we did a really good job of working together the three of us and we sort of had this running joke we would designate one person um chief morale officer each day <laughs> sorry to say that why when you were drinking <laughs> no that's awesome <laughs> um and the, the idea being that like hopefully we weren't all going to be having a bad day at the same time you know at least one right. of us would be feeling positive or feeling motivated <clears throat> and that person could help lift up the other two and that was great when we were working together but sometimes we did sort of turn on each other it was a really interesting sort of phenomenon we had the first month was whitewater and it was really hard and we worked very well together as a team to make it right. through the whitewater. The second month we were in a area that Peru calls the red zone, which is like a very dangerous area because of the human factor. There's a lot of drug trafficking and illegal logging. And so we really worked together as a team to sort of navigate this weird different kind of danger. And then when the third month started and we didn't have any more of these external threats, we just sort of turned on each other. It was like, we didn't have to work as a team anymore. So we're like, just let out all of our frustrations and emotions on each other. But a couple of things we did to try to like pull back from this fighting and start being a better team again was we all talked about the fact that we needed to focus on where we were. Like Don and Midge, banned each other from talking about pizza or hamburgers or <laughs> anything you couldn't get basically right. and the idea was like let's not focus on what we want to do when the expedition ends or everything we're missing out on let's just focus on being where we are and it was an amazing place to be and uh like the second part of that theory of not thinking about anything outside the amazon was it was sort of overwhelming to think about this whole project that we had taken on. Like if you thought, God, we still have 2000 miles to paddle or something, it was easier to fall into this trap of we're idiots, we bit, bitten off more than we can chew, we're not gonna be able to do it. 
But if you just woke up and thought, okay, we're just going to paddle 40 miles today, like that was very achievable. And when on days when even that felt too overwhelming, we just thought, okay, let's just paddle for an hour and then reassess and see how it's going. So breaking our giant crazy goal into thousands of miniature goals was probably the most helpful thing we did in like managing our emotions, I would say. Yeah. And, and you know what, what a great lesson for life, Darcy. I mean, we, we all have these monster goals and, and how do you take it in chunks? And, you know, at, even within our organization, we, we have a mentality and the, and the team all has a rock sitting on their desk. And it was Jacob Reese, who was a 1920s immigrant riot activist, but, but he had this poem and it said, when all hope fails, I think of a stone cutter hammering away at a stone more than a hundred times with no success. And on the hundred and first strike, the stone will split. And I know it's the hundred strikes before it that split the stone. Right. And, and the message is simply, let's just celebrate that we hit the stone yes. and, and eventually we will get to that goal. And uh, that, that is a mental perseverance thought process or philosophy we have. And I just think it's, it's not only brilliant, it's necessary yeah. uh, in life because that's when I, I think we get overwhelmed. We, we, we get overwhelmed when I see, the long goal and how far I still have to go to get there versus I'm making progress and I will eventually get to that someday, whenever that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I've seen so many people sort of give up before they even start because they yeah. start thinking of this dream or this goal and then they think of the whole thing and they think, oh, it's just too impossible. It's too overwhelming. Like I'm going to think of something smaller instead of just breaking that thing into a bunch of smaller ones and tackling it that way. And yeah, that it's been really helpful for me moving forward from the Amazon is to realize to approach life that way. And it does feel so much more manageable. And yeah, I, I love when you talked about dealing with where you were, because, you, you know, you start to become the victim when you don't. Because yeah. uh, you actually said that there's a great quote by John Chambers, who ran Cisco for a long period of time. He said, deal with the world the way it is, not the way you want it to be. And and I, I always try to keep that in mind because, yeah, that would be nice. It can't happen. So let's move on <laughs> because I got to deal with what I have. Uh, but I, I could not imagine um, how hard that gets the longer you're in the Amazon. Yes. To think that there's this world moving on outside, because can you describe the Amazon for people that have, I mean, most of us will never experience the Amazon. Uh, and, and if we do, it'll be a tourist experience, not not the way you did. Can, can you describe what that is like? Because I think you're pretty isolated at certain times. You know, uh, it's hard when, when we got to the whitewater section, we would go like a couple of weeks without seeing anybody else because it was right. in the bottom of this massive canyon and it was very remote and isolated. And once we got to the main river, there were a, a lot of towns and villages, you know, a surprising amount of population. Um, we would still go, you know, sometimes a couple of days without seeing people, but we would always eventually get to sometimes a big city like Iquitos or Manaus or something. And sometimes right. just little tiny villages. And it is hard to describe what it was like being out there. And I tried very hard before the trip to imagine it. Cause you hear these stories, like some places of the Amazon, it's so wide, you can't even see across them. Right. I tried so hard to imagine what it was be like, what it would be like in my imagination, like definitely failed me. And, you know, I guess just to put it in perspective or the terms or the way that I look at the world, when you're kayaking a normal river, if you want to cross from one side to another, 
you know, even in the biggest normal whitewater river you can imagine, like a, the longest time it might take you to cross would be 30 seconds. You know, like rivers just are not very wide. Right. And when we got to the lower part of the Amazon, we ended up, we started having to really strategize about when and where we would cross the river because sometimes a crossing of the river could take half a day. And like, we couldn't see the far shore when we set off sometimes. And it was just so mind boggling. It was like, okay, I don't exactly feel like I'm in the ocean, but this definitely doesn't feel like a river, you know, one of those sorts of feelings. And it, yeah, it was a really amazing phenomenon for me to witness that. Were there any surprises for you? I, I mean, as far as what you experienced or what you saw or something you weren't prepared for? Uh, I guess two things that immediately pop into mind. We had yeah. had tons of warnings about various um, groups of people and sections of river that were going to be very dangerous and we had to avoid this group of indigenous people or this group right. of civilians or whatever. And so we were kind of fearful going in, but the people that we actually got to speak with, even if it was the indigenous group that we were warned against or the Brazilians we were warned against, they were all very nice, like very generous, very helpful. There is like a general idea of fear, even amongst the locals about, you know, people that are going to rob them or kill them. Like right. it seems like there is a lot of violence and a lot of fear on the river, but everyone that we were able to speak to is very open to us and we're outsiders, which can be seen as a threat. Um, and sometimes like we had these big stickers on our kayaks that said kayaktheamazon.com. And we had this website that was tracking us. And a lot of times when we would stop at a village and ask to camp there or something, they would be sort of scared of us at first and like, okay, how do we know you're not going to rob us? How do we know all this stuff? And the way that it always um, got resolved was that we would find someone in town that had a smartphone and they would come put our website into their phone and look up what we were doing and be like, oh, 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 cool. Okay. You can camp here. You can do this. <laughs> So for me, it was kind of the dual thing of people were much nicer than we expected. And you're in this tiny little village and some dude whips out a smartphone and starts. You know, <laughs> and then the other thing I wasn't that prepared for is I kind of thought, okay, we'll have a month of white water, four months of flat water, and the flat water is just going to be boring and tedious and easy. And it was for a couple months. But towards the end, uh, it got very difficult because we'd get wind and tides, like tides come up the Amazon River more than 800 miles from the Atlantic oh. Ocean. Oh, wow. So it created these big waves and um, pretty difficult paddling conditions. And so we had a lot of, in a way, fun challenges on the water towards the end of the trip, which I wasn't expecting, but was, again, good for our team bonding. We had to work together again. <laughs> well, you... Um... You, you mentioned at one point with Don and, and bugs. Uh, how bad were the bugs? Uh, any creatures that you came across that were, uh, not, I won't, don't say alarming, but at least uh, ma made you quite aware? So the worst thing were the sand flies. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so basically any daylight hour, yeah. the sand flies were horrible. And that was the most annoying thing. We did, we had a lot of cool wildlife encounters. Like we saw stingrays in the river. We saw tons of uh, pink Amazonian river dolphins, which were amazing. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah, we saw the first one on our 30th day, and then we saw them almost every day all the way till the end. So that was very nice. And tons of amazing bird life. We didn't have any truly scary yeah. uh, wildlife encounters, though we did see caiman 
Um, we never saw a single piranha, which was sort of disappointing. <laughs> I love that. You know, you're you're adventurous when you're like, I didn't see a piranha. I really wanted to see a piranha. <laughs> it was a funny. Like every time we would get to a village, <clears throat> we often tried to camp in villages in the flat water because everyone said it was safer as opposed to camping in a remote area. So we'd get to the village and we'd talk to the people and say, hey, is it safe to swim here or are the piranhas going to get us? And they would always laugh at us. And a couple of them even said, like, you guys have watched too many American movies. Like, the piranhas are not going to attack you. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, what an adventure. I I, I, um, I, I read something, if you could educate me because of my ignorance. Um, I, I The way I'm reading this, I, I think being a female adventure kayaker is rare or or it's a male dominated sport, so to speak. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. It's definitely a male dominated sport. It, it is getting better. Like there are a lot, now there are a lot more women that are running hard white water and doing expeditions. Like when I started, I, I would never see another woman on the rivers that I was running. And now, now I do, which is awesome. So it, it's getting better, but it is male dominated. And um, it's probably hard to tell right here, but <clears throat> I'm very short and skinny and I look really very wimpy. So I like do not fit a good picture of the expedition kayaker and have definitely, uh, I guess, been frustrated by other people's perceptions of what I can and can't do. And felt like I spent a lot of my life trying to prove them wrong, which I feel like is not the purest motivation to do things, but it has been a great motivator for me. Well, yeah, you know, candidly, some of the greatest athletes that I have followed or read about or studied, they, they, their motivation was proving people wrong. It yeah. it, it drove them. Um, you know, it's it, even even if you followed Tiger when he would rebuild a swing or they told him he couldn't do something, that's what always drove Tiger to that next step of I'm going to prove everybody that I can do that. Uh, sometimes to the point he said he needed that motivation. Like yeah. he was so going, <laughs> he he needed something outside to say, okay, now you've ticked me off, and now I'm going to show you that that I can do that. But I I, I think that's fascinating because I I you know I have a a lot of women in my life, uh, daughters and granddaughters, and um, I I'm always I, I'm always amazed my my youngest. Uh, my youngest daughter, particularly, you know, it, it's always been that there is no obstacle that she can't overcome. Nice. And, and she's five, she's five foot nothing. Uh, but, but just has this presence about her and this drive that I, I think is really inspiring because I, I really do think that's the world we're in. And, and, and I'm curious, were you welcomed into the community uh, of a well dot, you know, a male dominated sport, or did you feel some of that, or is it half and half? I mean, is that kind of the world we live in, you know? Yeah, I would say, so my experience um, relatively early on in my career, maybe I had been kayaking three or four years, um, I met Don, who is now my boyfriend, and a guy named Larry Vermeeren in Ecuador, and they were both extremely welcoming, extremely encouraging, right. and if I said I, I was going to do something, they didn't doubt me, they just said, great, you know, go to it. <clears throat> so those two were very important in my early um, kayaking career. But outside of those two, I don't know that I would say I wasn't ex accepted into the community. But what would happen right. almost all the time is like Don and I would go to some <clears throat> class five river. 
And some young guys would come up to me and say, hey, are you sure you're good enough for this? Are you sure you should be putting on here? And it's like, okay, why aren't you asking Don the same question? He's just as unknown to you <laughs> as I am. And so stuff like that happened to me a lot. And it it wasn't just uh, from men. There was, we went to this one river that has a dam on it and they, the dam keepers coordinate releases to accommodate kayakers. And it's a really hard run and I'm putting on and the dam keeper woman runs out and she said, there's really big rapids down there and you're so small. I don't know if you should be doing this. And it's right. like, come on, lady, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there was there was a lot of, of that. And now I, I think it's a combination of half I don't care as much because I have more confidence in my own skills. So I don't need as much um, mm-hmm. approval from the outside. But half... Uh, I am much more well-known in the kayaking community. So when I show up to class five river now, the young guys are like, oh, okay, that's Darcy. She is good enough. But that's not necessarily going to stop them from saying the same thing to another woman they don't know. You know, there still is this perception in the whitewater world that it's for guys, it's for big, strong guys. And women are, they're definitely breaking in, but it's been a slow and challenging process, I would say. Well, and, you know, and I think you just highlight of issues I think we all have with perceptions in a variety of ways, uh, because because I wonder if you, as you said, you're smaller. Um, I wonder if you were a much larger woman, you know, would would it be the same question or is it a combination of the two? And and there's no answer to that. My, my point is we, we tend to judge a book by its cover yes. instead of understanding we should be asking questions and learning. But but not judging a, a book because of the way you know the cover may look, and I I, I love that because I I, I do think I, what I think is interesting in your story is you said, you know, Don was very welcoming and encouraging. You how different is that experience sometimes when people move into something new and the first people they they come in contact with aren't you know and they don't push through. Right. I mean, it could have easily turned me away from the sport if I had people early on that were encouraging to it, you know, and so that, yeah, that is definitely a tricky thing. And, you know, one thing that I talk about in, in my talks is this idea, what you're saying, judging a book by a cover and everybody does it. I mean, I make judgments too, you know, it's just the way that our brain tries to organize the information coming at it. And You know, that was one thing that I realized after a while. It's like, okay, I am not going to stop these people from judging me. So I can only control how I react to it. And, you know, you have to stop worrying about it at a certain point, which is hard to do. We all want the approval of others, the support and encouragement of others. But at a certain point, you just have to look at, okay, I'm doing this because I want to. And in a way to hell with the rest of the world. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that's what I was getting to is that I think it's important for people not to get discouraged. If this is something you want to do in any community, you will find the dons of the world. Yes, you just, you, ju- you just got to keep pushing and you got to keep looking and you will find them eventually. And I, I don't care if that's business. I don't care if it's certain companies because in all organizations, you will find the dons that yes. are there to help and guide and encourage. Uh, and there's others that just won't. And for a variety of reasons, but I, I think that it's an important message for, you know, that, that I picked up in just reading your story is that you continue to push through that. This is my dream. This is what I want to do. And, you know, and I love that you, that there's the commentary and you said it here is 
you weren't going to be forced into people's social norms. Yes. That it, it's your life and and do with it do with it what what you choose. And um, I I just think that's an important message that and and I believe that's kind of what you're talking to when you're out on the speaking circuit now, isn't it? Yep, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is. And I think like American social values are are changing right now. And the pandemic um, pushed a lot of people to think differently about how they want to live their lives and everything. But there was there was a time when uh, Don and I have been together 20 years now and we're not married. So that's weird. We don't have kids. So that's <laughs> weird. We don't own a house. So that's weird. There's just like all these boxes that we haven't properly checked. And it was really hard for a while to live that way. And, I, you know, I know even people that are doing all of those things, they're always going to be doing something against society. Like all of us have something we want to do differently. And it's hard because we feel like we're not conforming. And it is just important to realize that, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think non-conforming is still cool. So we should, we should try to strive for that. <laughs> I like that. And you, you know, and it's funny when you're, when you say, I don't have a house, you know, we're not married and that's weird. I go, I don't think it's weird. It's just different from the norm and 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 I think that's what's changing. I think yeah. 20 years ago it would be weird. Today it's just not the norm, but what you just described, I I have a there there is a uh, a woman executive in a company that we partner with and that and we've partnered with them even in my past career. Um and what's interesting is she didn't have a home. She gave up her place. She used to live in New York, but she realized she's always on the road. So why is she paying, you know, for for a a house or a rent? And that one was an apartment. Why am I paying for an apartment when I'm never there? And she became a nomad. Nice. And and when she was going to stay somewhere for 30 days or so, it was an Airbnb. And she got to stay in that home for, you know, those 30 days that she was. But she realized when she wasn't traveling, she could stay anywhere. Yeah, it was, it was no longer having to just be in New York. So yeah, that to me, that's what, what you're saying. That's. 20 years ago, that would have seemed so odd. Today, it just makes sense. Yeah. And, totally. it, depending on your lifestyle. And when you describe your lifestyle and, and what you do and what you do for a living, it's like, how would you have a permanent residence? How would you have kids? <laughs> you just couldn't do it. <laughs> so there is that rationale that goes with it. But I, 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 I think it is so important to encourage people to live their life. And, you know, I, I, what, what I have learned um, over time, life is fleeting and, it, and it's very quick. And uh, I read a quote and it sounds darker than it is because if you hear the whole conversation, it's not dark, but it's like, we are all born to die. Yeah. That the moment you were born, the clock starts ticking. So take advantage of every minute. And that's what I mean. It sounds darker than it is when you're saying you're born to die, but the reality is you're going to, but you're going to be born and you're going to die. What you do in between is really important. And I, I read somebody who had read your book. There was a commentary about you, you have allowed people to remember it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the journey and not the destination as, as how it re, you know relates to life? Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, back to your point of we're born to die. I've had in the last couple of years, unfortunately, a lot of young friends pass away, including last week, a 24 year old friend passed away. And it is, it's just always a reminder that, you know, nothing is guaranteed. We all think, okay, we'll live to 80, 90, hundred, but we don't know that. And yeah, I mean, it's all, I've never had too much of a problem of kind of doing what I want to do now, instead of thinking of long-term planning and what I should be doing. So I've, 
I feel sort of lucky in that regard, but it reminds me to bring myself back to that, you know, whenever I'm feeling pressure mm-hmm. to plan for the future, do whatever else. It's like, no, let's just keep focused on what I'm doing now. And um, yeah, in terms of not the destination, but focus on the journey, I just like on the Amazon, when I was saying it was so important for us to be focused on what we were doing now, not think sort of beyond the confines of the Amazon. It's like, I think a lot of unhappiness in America, I can't really speak to other countries, comes from our real inability to live in the present. You know, I feel like we're always worrying about the future or upset about the past. Why didn't I do this differently? Why didn't I do that differently? And it, it makes for a very cluttered, unhappy mind. And so trying to just do what you're doing in the moment. Again, I, I'm a big fan of setting goals and mm-hmm. making goals. So I, I do like thinking of the future in that regard. But then when I have my goal, I am able to like focus so much energy right now on working what I need to do to get towards that goal, if that makes sense. So it, I guess it I'm being a little bit, a little bit hypocritical because I am future thinking, but that allows me to be more motivated and more productive in the now. No, I don't think that's hypocritical. It's you can't get there without certain steps and certain work. And that's what you're saying. Yeah, You know, and to me, I rewind to your 10 year, 10 year training to do what you did. It's like you had the goal, but now you got to work on, well, if I want to do that, this is what I got to do today. Right. And exactly. that, that's how I took what you said. And and I think that is and, and that's enjoying that what I'm doing today is getting me set for something larger. And right. and I should celebrate something that seems very insignificant. Yeah. You know, totally. in that. Yeah. That that's how I, I look at life as well as, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like you. I, I, I do have my goals and but you know, as I as I tell people often, you know, what usually changes is my timeline, not 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 necessarily the goal. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but I know it's there because I have other life coming at me, and and that is a piece of it. But I I I couldn't agree more. We've become a society that is so so stuck on, you know, this instant gratification that I sometimes think we can't truly enjoy right. the moment because we can't understand it's it's part of something bigger. And mm-hmm. um, I you know I I I I run a sales organization. Salespeople they're achievers. Yeah. Uh, when when you look at their background, so if they're, if they're not making the sales sometimes like right now, they feel like they 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 weren't productive. Yet a relationship they're building that will pay off six months from now is still as valuable, and and yet it doesn't feel as rewarding to them. And I'm always trying to make them that that's to me the journey for them re- feel rewarded on the relationship and the time we're spending because it will pay dividends. It's just going to take time. Right. Uh, yeah, and I mean, that goes back to the breaking it down into a bunch of tiny little goals, because if you can exactly. feel like you're checking things off your to-do list with these little tiny goals, you, yeah, you feel good. You're accomplishing stuff. Yeah. So, so speaking of goals, what what's next on, on your list? Any, anything, any large goals out there for you? Uh, River-wise, yes. Yeah. So Don and I, well, so the Amazon happened in 2013. Right. And we have uh, accomplished about five big whitewater goals since then that Don and I had been planning. And the newest one, we both really liked the source to sea idea. You know, it was very cool to see a river as this tiny trickle and then get to travel the whole length of it and see it be an ocean, basically. 
but we wanted something with less flat water because we're both whitewater kayakers. And so right. there's um in northern British Columbia, like the very northern part, there's something called the Sacred Headwaters Plateau. And three major rivers come off of it and go into the Pacific Ocean. And so we're going to do source to sea on those three rivers. And they're all three to 400 miles a piece. So they'll probably take a couple months a piece. But uh, it'll be like a little bit of flat water, but mainly it's great. Uh, white water and it's a beautiful part of the country that we just both want to spend more time in that is awesome so when are you planning to do that when, when is that upcoming hopefully next summer but if we have some conflicts with our work it's like <laughs> a, it has to be in the fall for water levels <clears throat> so if we can pull it off next summer yes but if not we're sort of clearing our whole calendar for 2024 to be able to do that Oh my God, that that is exciting. We're, well, we're gonna have to have you back once you uh, complete the next journey. That's gonna be a lot of fun. Um, and congratulations, because I, you know, I do think that is important. That um, as as we accomplish things, I'm always one to say, okay, so what's next? And yeah. and the what next sometimes is small. It doesn't have to be large, but there has to be something else that we are now focused on, so that we don't settle, so to speak. Yeah, and it was sort of amazing on the Amazon trip, you know, it had been in the works for so long. And then we spent five months of truly like every day we paddled, even though we weren't supposed to be thinking of the end. I think all of us on a certain level were just dreaming of the moment when we finished. And when we actually did finish, finish, it was just like this amazingly empty feeling. I mean, I just remember like, oh, crap, what are we going to do tomorrow? <laughs> that was the overwhelming feeling you know and so it is important to have something else to look forward to have something else to work towards you know it's keep you going it's definitely important well and, and i you know darcy i think that's what keeps the great ones going is that okay it's now now i have to drive towards something else because i i was just going to ask you that what was it like to finish and your it, was it a sense of relief and and to your point was okay what next yeah i mean so the when we actually landed on the beach we really had about a half an hour of fun celebration like yes we did this thing and it was a beautiful setting it was this white sand beach we had amazing sunset you know no people around and it you know we're just looking over the Atlantic Ocean and it was, it was great it was really a great feeling but it truly only lasted about a half an hour and you know for 148 days our life had been uh very simple like wake up eat breakfast go kayaking and we had this goal like every ounce of our energy was uh, put into achieving it and so when that was gone all of a sudden it really was like oh I didn't think through like what this moment was going to be like. And it was just, yeah, it was incredibly empty feeling. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing to accomplish something that was so ambitious and to be a little empty right. uh, when it's done. And, and I think it's a great lesson to pull away from because sometimes it's, it, it's, it, again, you talked about the journey, not the destination. You got yeah. to the destination and it was a little empty. Yeah, Absolutely. And yeah, there's a, just a quick, funny story if you have time. Oh yeah, absolutely. So we we had to change our plane tickets a few times because we were late. So we had, kept having to push our plane tickets back and we ended up finishing pretty close to Christmas. And so Don and I couldn't get a ticket home for like eight days after we finished. So we were hanging out in Brazil in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, so I was, had a lot of time to think and I was like, I wonder 
if people are going to look at us differently now that we've done this. You know, and I thought to myself, maybe this Amazon thing will finally be the thing that proves to all these strangers that I am capable of big things. And so I'm like, yes, we're heroes. People are going to look at us differently. And we fly home finally. And we're on the shuttle bus going to the rental car place when we get home. We have a ton of luggage. And this couple starts asking like, well, you guys have a lot of luggage. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, well, we just got back from five months in South America. And she was like, oh, you're missionaries. That's so nice. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm like, uh, we just kayaked the Amazon. And I was like, and you know what? I'm the first woman to ever do it. And she just kind of looked at me blankly. And there was this long, awkward silence. And then she goes, oh, well, me and my husband are going skiing in Breckenridge. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, all right. So there's that's how people look at us now. Great. <laughs> that is that is really funny. <laughs> and then it was just another reminder uh, not to look for other people's approval. Just be happy with what we did. Yeah, it, it's a great message. You did it for you. And yes. and that's what you did. And and it's something that you've accomplished. And congratulations. I mean, truly, uh, truly an experience. And thank you for sharing with us. I I, I was curious on what it was like being in the Amazon for that time frame, And can, can, one last question. I, I'm just curious. You talked about you ate breakfast. How did you eat the rest of the day? Did you guys stop and just stop on the edge? And how, how did you prepare food and eat food and take it with you? Yeah, so it was the logistics were very complicated on this trip. We, um, for the first 50 days, we brought enough dehydrated meals from the U.S. to have one for breakfast and one for dinner. And what we ended up doing, like, especially, so we were in whitewater kayaks for the first month right. and we switched into sea kayaks when the flat water started. And the whitewater kayaks, you're very limited with what you can bring. Like we could do about eight days or maybe 10 days of stuff shoved in the back of the kayak. So we would package up boxes of our dehydrated meals and just go to a town and try to find a guy with a truck and give him some GPS coordinates and say, hey, in two weeks or 10 days, could you drop this box of food for us at these GPS coordinates? So we would get like resupplied and hope, of course, that the guy really was going to do it. Right. Um, but so, yeah, we would wake up in the morning, boil water and make a dehydrated meal for breakfast. And then we typically would eat like a cliff bar or some kind of energy bar for lunch and then eat another dehydrated meal <clears throat> at night when we got to camp. And then, so yeah, that was the first 50 days. And after that, um, towns and villages were common enough that we could stop in. We still didn't really eat lunch all that often, but right. we could resupply from the towns and buy food. And so um, I'm vegan, so it was a little bit harder for me. And I ate dehydrated meals more than the guys did, but they could almost always get fish once we got down to the flat water. And if towns were big enough, we could get beans and rice and that kind of thing. Watermelons were extremely prevalent, which... I wasn't expecting, but you could always find watermelons anywhere you went. <laughs> that it's amazing to me because I, I I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned breakfast. I'm like, how did you eat? And and to say I, I gave coordinates to a guy with a truck and I hoped it was going to be there. Oh my God, what an experience! And and uh, how much trust we put in others, you know, which is kind of interesting because you talked about you know at least meeting some interesting human beings uh, on the journey. Yeah. yeah. One thing I really love, you know, after a couple of decades of working in Ecuador and just spending a lot of time in South America, people there are so good at 
innovating, you know, like any problem that you have, they can find a solution to. And it's always super creative and, and for the most part, really trustworthy, you know, like we did, we always in the back of our minds were like, okay, is this guy going to show up? But right. he always did, you know, the people always did. They always came through for us. If they said they were going to do something, they did it. And yeah, it was just a good experience. That's amazing. Dar Darcy, again, thank you for taking the time and thank you for sharing your little bit of your life and your passion with our listeners because I, I know it's going to be as valuable to them as it was to us. So we appreciate you being part of the Alhai family. Thank you. Well, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Meeting Room presented by Associated Luxury Hotels International. Alhai is a global sales and marketing organization representing the finest luxury hotels, cruise lines, and destination management companies. For the latest industry news and to see Alhai's robust portfolio, follow us on LinkedIn and check out our website at alhi.com. To learn more about Darcy or book her as a potential speaker, visit our partners, Leading Authorities, at leadingauthorities.com and search by name.